then when I feel so stuffed I can't eat anymore, I just use the restroom. And then I can eat more. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat From more. Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast with your host, Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So powerful. heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartold in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is the 1st of January, 2014, and happy freaking New Year! On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, and hip-hop music, and killer robots. Did I say that already? Whatever. Buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I not, do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. And we can find the rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. It's a new year, and, uh... I never feel like anything's very different when it's New Year's. Like, I always feel like it's another day. We made it around the sun again. Um, whatever. But anyway, I am actually doing a New Year's resolution this year, which is very bizarre because usually I don't. When people ask me, what's your New Year's resolution? I say, uh, I'm going to stop using arbitrary measures of time and space in order to conduct changes in my life. <laughs> it's very clever, see, because I'm saying that I'm not. My students always look at me like, what? But this year, I'm actually doing something new. I'm going to be blogging every day. And the reason for this is because I haven't been blogging much at all lately. I've been uh, mostly just posting the podcast to the website along with links to stories. But I haven't been writing a whole lot of stuff that's new. And part of that, I think, is that I don't... I don't know. I, I always think it's weird when people post the minutia of their day. And it's better, I think, when... It, first of all, if you can do it in a very entertaining way, like Mimi Smarty Pants, she's awesome. So, uh, if, you know, I'll put a link to her if you've never read her show, or her podcast... God, her website! It's a website. She just writes, that's it. There's no podcast, there's no show. It's just a website. But it's great. It's very entertaining, and she has an amazing ability to take, you know, the stuff that happens to her, some of which is mundane, some of which is bizarre, and just present it with panache and style, and it's always enjoyable, even if she's writing about doing her laundry or whatever. So I wish I had that talent. I kind of don't, but I do think that it's interesting to have a little bit of, I mean, a lot of it's for me, because I'm reading uh, Alison Bechdel's second book now. Well, it's her, like, 20th book, but her second memoir, and her first one, Safe Home, or Fun House, sorry, Fun Home, that's the name of it, Fun Home. Uh, it's about her dad and how... Um, he struggled his sexuality, and, and it sort of paralleled, sort of, but he took it in many different directions than her own, and so on and so forth, and it has to do with homosexuality, and, and she did a comic strip for many years, I think she's still doing it, called Dykes to Watch Out For. Uh, very funny, very important look at the politics of all this stuff. Anyway, her second book, Are You My Mother, is, it's interesting and it's powerful, but it's not as gripping, and... Um, I'll be writing a review of it on Goodreads if you want to follow me there. You can find out exactly what I think. Anyway, she's writing a lot about her, you know, reflecting on stuff she'd written, and I realized that it's it's interesting for me to go back and look at stuff I'd written at various points of my life while I've been blogging and see, you know, the links between what's happening in my life and what I'm writing on the blog and 
whatever. It's just, I think, an interesting glimpse into my own life. So whatever. I'll be blogging every day. You can actually read stuff I've written on the blog. Uh, fbesp.org slash synapse. And uh, yeah, that's where I post all the links and stuff. So I'll also be writing some stuff about other stuff. All right. Uh, the take action for this episode is about freeing Chelsea Manning. Amnesty International has an online action. You should totally sign up. The letter that they want you to send includes the following. The materials leaked by Manning reveal potential human rights violations and breaches of international humanitarian law by U.S. troops, Iraqi and Afghan forces operating alongside U.S. forces, military contractors, and the CIA. The severity of the sentence imposed on Private Manning is more harsh than that imposed on some members of the military who have been convicted of serious crimes, including murder, rape, and war crimes. Private Manning has already served more than three years in pretrial detention, including 11 months in conditions acknowledged as breaching military military standards and condemned as cruel and inhumane by the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. That's totally bogus and she should be freed because she's uh, she's, she took action to get the truth to all of us. And um, I think that that makes her a whistleblower. And we need people like that to let us know what's going on in our name and with our tax dollars. All right, let's talk about some other Practice in fracking news, uh, hormone disrupting chemicals found in water at fracking sites. And this is from the Los Angeles Times. They actually do some really good research and in-depth articles from time to time. It's not like, I don't know, there are some newspapers that are kind of provincial and they mostly cover their own areas. But LA Times does a good job of going all over the place. Water samples collected at Colorado sites where hydraulic fracturing was used to extract natural gas show the presence of chemicals that have been linked to infertility, birth defects, and cancer, scientists reported Monday. The study, published in the journal Endocrinology, Endocrinology, also found elevated levels of the hormone-disrupting chemicals in the Colorado River, where wastewater released during accidental spills at nearby wells could end up. Tests of water from sites with no fracking activity also revealed the activity of so-called endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, but the levels from these control sites were lower than in places with direct links to fracking, the study found. Quote, with fracking on the rise, populations may face greater health risks from increased endocrine-disrupting chemical exposure, said senior author Susan Nagel, Nagel, who investigates the health effects of estrogen at the University of Missouri School of Medicine. And I was nitpicking about Bat Kid, but Peter Singer is actually hating. And I use hating in quote marks because it's not a matter of hating. It's a matter of critiquing and, and providing a different point of view. And I think this is Peter Singer being Peter Singer. Uh, he's an interesting philosopher. He's a really uh, important guy. He makes a lot of really important points. His, one of his most famous things recently has been the, the um, sacrifice your shoes sort of analogy. And he says if, if there's a, a kid drowning and you had on a $100 pair of shoes, would you risk ruining those shoes? If you knew it was going to ruin the shoes, would you still jump in the lake to save the kid from drowning? And of course, everyone says yes. But the point he makes is, if you were to take that $100, and instead of buying a fancy pair of shoes uh, that you don't need, if you sent that to you know some organization feeding hungry people or you know providing material assistance in some way, you could save someone's life. You could save many people's lives. And so it's just an important way of thinking about how we spend our money and all the stuff we buy that we don't need. <clears throat> Thank God I'd never do that. Ooh, oh, oh, time's a steam sale on. 
Anyway, so Peter Singer wrote a piece uh, which was printed where? What was this? The Washington Post. And it says, heartwarming causes are nice, but let's give to charity with our heads. So he says, he starts out recognizing how this is going to sound, right? You'd have to be a real spoil sport not to feel good about Bat Kid if the sight of 20,000 people joining in last month to help the Make-A-Wist Foundation and the city of San Francisco fulfill the superhero fantasies of a five-year-old, not just any five-year-old, but one who has been battling a life-threatening disease, if that doesn't warm your heart, you must be numb to basic human emotions. Yet we can still ask if these emotions are the best guide to what we ought to do. According to Make-A-Wish, the average cost of realizing the wish of a child with a life-threatening illness is $7,500. That sum, if donated to the Against Malaria Foundation and used to provide bed nets to families in malaria-prone regions, could save the lives of at least two or three children, and that's a conservative estimate. If donated to the Fistula Foundation, it could pay for surgeries for approximately 17 young mothers who, without that assistance, will be unable to prevent their bodily wastes from leaking through their vaginas and hence are likely to be outcasts for the rest of their lives. If donated to the SIVA Foundation to treat trachoma and other common causes of blindness in developing countries, it could protect a hundred children from losing their sight as they grow older. Yeah, but you know what, Peter Singer? I don't. Uh, those kids don't look like anyone I know. They're off in other countries. Why do I want to pay money to help people in other countries? I want to help cute kids in my country. I mean, uh, kids in my. I mean, every, I want to help everybody in my country. That's what's important, Peter Singer. Now, okay, in all seriousness, this he raises a very good point, and I basically agree with it. However, I also think that looking at, you know, contributing to the world in a purely mathematical fashion and breaking everything down to numbers and, and balance sheets is just unfeasible as humans. Now, that said, I, I think we do tend to, you know, as a society, we tend to go for the most adorable thing. And, and the thing that will make us feel great and, and, you know, making a kid feel like Batman helps us to all feel great, too. And it's adorable. There's no question about it. If only we could save malaria, kids from malaria, uh, with Batman somehow, that would be awesome. That would be the best of all worlds. Hey, we'll save the kid from malaria, and then we'll help make him feel like Batman in some other country. Uh, as you probably know, hopefully you do, Pussy Riot members were freed. Yay! But as soon as they got out, they started talking smack about the prison uh, system in Russia. There was uh, a bunch of articles about this. In one of them, uh, Tolokonikova confirmed that the two women planned to meet soon to discuss the new project that they're working on with the other members of the band. Quote, Russia is built along the same lines as a prison camp at the moment, so it's important to change the prison camps so we can start to change Russia, she said. Everything is just starting, so fasten your seatbelts. Yes, that's like me. Buckle up and let's get started. Dude, we're like this, me and Tolokonikova. Um, the other member of the group, Aliokina, described her prison sentence as a time of, quote, endless humiliations, including forced gynecological examinations almost every day for three weeks. She said, quote, I decided to become a human rights activist when I realized how easy it was for officials to make a decision and force women to be examined in the most intimate parts of their bodies. Russian officials should not stay unpunished. They cannot have this kind of absolute power over us. Amen, sister. Fight the power. We're right there with you. I mean, we're not in Russian prisons, but, you know, we, we support you and we love you and we send our solidarity toward you. Um, yeah, there's a civil war maybe brewing in South Sudan. Oh, this conflict is so uh, complex. That's a good word for it, complex. And that's the important thing I want to emphasize is that it seems like it's impossible for us to sort of follow it because 
it's it's you know I don't know I, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that we feel like we're always getting war in Africa like it's, there's always war in Africa that's all that goes on in Africa it's just war civil war and insurgencies and you know guerrilla warfare and rebels trying to take the capital and that's all we ever hear out of Africa now but that's part of the problem that that's the only story that comes to us from Africa um because there's lots of other stuff of course going on in Africa as well but. I don't know. I, I'm always uncomfortable with that. Th- th- that can breed a certain mindset of, well, we don't. Therefore, we don't have to pay attention to what's going on in Africa because we know what's going on there. It's just war, right? In the same way, we can't have that attitude toward Israel and Palestine. We can't have that attitude toward, uh, you know, other Sri Lanka and and it's and Pakistan. We can't. It's it's really tempting, but it's really dangerous for us to write off an entire country or an entire region because we think we know everything that's going on there. Uh, yeah, so I wrote on my blog about it. This makes me very sad. I'm trying hard to resist the standard American mindset of war in Africa. What else is new? Um, I'm always amused and saddened when people only... Me- oh, yeah, uh, the, the, I said... Talking about amused. No, I'm trying to stay connected with the pain and horror that we all felt on 9-11 and keep myself linked to the reality that thousands of people are experiencing that right now in South Sudan. Women, men, boys, and girls. I'm always amused and saddened when people only mention women and children as if men can't or won't experience pain, loss, suffering in these situations. Granted, 99% of the time it's men who initiate and perpetuate these uh, horrors, but other men, are, of course, are caught in the crossfire, yada, yada, yada. Um, meanwhile, reports of other atrocities are coming out of the Central African Republic. Uh, alas, there's nothing I've found in terms of action alerts or things that you and I can do at the moment. The UN is sending 6,000 more peacekeepers to try to quell the fighting. Uh, what struck me most about this story is how blasé we can be about civil war uh, while simultaneously filling our lungs with indignant outrage when we hear about mass killings. So we hear about you know, mass graves. We're like, oh my God, that's atrocious. We hear about war. We tend to be a little less outraged. And, you know, part of that makes sense because it's, you know, a mass killing is obviously one-sided. But the fact that there's twice as many people being killed seems to elicit half of as much outrage from us, which is horrible. I mean, what is war but mass killing carried out by two sides, right? It's all very sad. And there was an article about corruption in East Timor recently, which has not been helping my spirits either. Uh, so that's messed up. I'm trying to keep my eyes on it. And there was a very interesting piece in The Guardian uh, called How Hollywood Cloaked South Sudan in Celebrity and Fell for the Big Lie. Now, I'm not too interested in the celebrity elements of this story. and I just want to share the important background info that's not getting out here. Uh, in a way, I think the article succumbs to the same celebrity fixation that it purports to critique, but whatever. Uh, the article starts with some important historical background. I won't go into all of it now, but I'll pick up around post-2005. No serious effort was made by any side in the post-2005 cooling-off period to reconcile the North and South. The U.S., Europe, and U.N., and the South's near neighbors, Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya, all pushed for the country to be broken up. So this is when South Sudan broke away from regular Sudan. Uh, This effort was formalized in a referendum in 2011. The pursuit of separation at all costs made it harder to admit certain truths, such as ethnic divisions, and created the need for the big lie, as one senior UN official calls it. Quote, the big lie is that there was no ethnic problem in South Sudan. There's a political problem. Later in the article, while demobilization and disarmament schemes were announced, for much of the time between 2005 and the referendum, uh, governing consists of farming out oil and aid money to the Civil War-era military commanders in order to keep the peace. Little was done to break up old units and forge a truly national army. The the SPLA, uh, some organization of military uh, individuals, had become a big tent into which armed ethnic militias with no uniform, training, or shared identity had wandered in order to get paid. 
so that's one of the reasons why there's the fighting that happens now. And, and it's it's not as though we can point to one person or one group and say they're the bad guys. You know, there was a great Bloom County cartoon once where um, Binkley went to his dad and said, Dad, what's going on in the Middle East? And he said, well, son, you know, Israel and Palestine and, you know, Lebanon. He goes, and Binkley just goes, who's the good guys? And he says, well, you know, it's, it's kind of tricky to answer that question because there's been a lot of violence perpetuated. And he goes, who's the bad guys? And he goes, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's that simple. And let me, let me explain Grenada to you, son. And he goes, no, 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 no. So I, I feel that way a lot of times when I'm trying to understand what's going on in Africa. And there was this map posted to the South Sudan Civil War Reddit. Yes, what an uplifting Reddit for me to subscribe to. They had a map about like all the different ethnic groups in South Sudan, and it was just stunning the way that you know this country about the same size as Afghanistan has like dozens and dozens of different ethnic groups and languages and all that complexity. Uh, you know, we we feel in the United States that tension when we, we interact with people who speak Spanish, right? There's a there's a there's a deep tension between a lot of Americans who speak English only and, and they feel like, oh, these people who speak this other language are coming, you know, to take our jobs and, and there's a lot of paranoia and there's a lot of white supremacy and stuff. But that's one where there's one language division. Imagine if there were like thirty. And at different times there are different language splits in the United States, obviously, but um it's not nearly, I think, that same sort of intensity. So whatever. I, I just find all that stuff Important to keep track of, and I'll let you know if I find out more things about South Sudan and the violence going on there, because I don't want to ever turn a blind eye to pain and suffering going on in the world. Hajun Chang wrote a really interesting piece recently on his, uh, it wasn't on his blog, it, I, I found it via his blog, but it was actually somewhere else, and it was about the nature of uh, economists, and I really like that, so I'm going to link to it. Uh, there's a piece from the Financial Times uh, called Lunch with the FT, uh, and it's they, they go out to lunch with an economist, and half the article is like talking about what he's eating and how he's eating it, and I'm like, who cares? I don't care at all about that. Let's talk about economics. But you have to catch people's interest, and they may not always be interested in the economics, but I would say if you're reading the Financial Times, aren't you already interested in ah, whatever. Anyway, uh, one of the things that he says in that is really interesting about how most economists look at stuff. So he says, quote, and Hajin Chang is one of my favorite econo economists. Uh, he wrote 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. He wrote a book called Bad Samaritans, which is excellent. You should read both of those, definitely. So he says, in a biology department, you have people doing all sorts of different things. So some do DNA analysis, others do anatomy, some people go and sit with gorillas in the forests of Burundi, and others do experiments with rats. But they are called biologists because biologists recognize that living organisms are complex things, and you can't, under you can't understand them only at one level. So why can't economists become like that? Yes, you do need people crunching numbers, but you also need people going to factories and doing surveys. You need people watching political changes to see what's going on. I just love that way of looking at economics in a different way because there is a there's a hierarchy, there's a snobbery that goes on with economics. And and the the hard data form of economics deserves to have that snobbery and that that, you know, tenacity, that, that rigidity of, you know, we're going to talk about numbers here. And if it doesn't work by the numbers, then we can't say that it's working by the numbers. And that's important, you know, because otherwise we, we ignore the realities of things like poverty and starvation or whatever. But it's not as though hard data is the only kind of economics that we need to have access to. And especially as members of a democracy, if we're going to have meaningful participation in the way our society works, we need to know 
how that society works, not only from a hard data point of view, especially when a lot of that hard data research is being funded by people who want to maintain the status quo. So whatever. You can read Charles Ferguson's book, Predator Nation, for more information on that. GM does not owe $450 million in retiree benefits, says U.S. Judge. This was a shocking decision that came out of Detroit. Um, yeah, this is from Reuters News. In a 36-page decision, U.S. District Judge Avern Cohn in Detroit said on Tuesday that the current GM did not assume any obligation for the payment which the automaker had contracted to make two years before its big June 2009 bankruptcy filing. Out of the article. So, in other words, when GM filed for bankruptcy, it basically became a new company. And... and if, unless explicitly stated otherwise, none of the obligations that the old GM had apply to the new GM. It's like it's like if I wrote a hundred thousand bad checks in one town and then I moved like on The Simpsons when Lionel Hutz is like, say hello to Miguel Sanchez. It's like, dude, what the heck? You can't just do that. Lionel Hutz, alias Miguel Sanchez, alias Dr. Nurejev Van Tok, recibió ocho dollars por sus 32 horas de niñera. Se alegró mucho. <laughs> That's the bit at the end of that episode where uh, they, they do like kind of a dragnet style uh, review of what happened to everybody in the episode, and I found it in Spanish. How about that? Anyway, that's what GM did. Uh, the payment had been part of a June 2007 contract between the old GM, its former Delphi Corp affiliate, and the UAW. It was not, however, included in a different contract over medical benefits signed in July 2009 by the GM that emerged from Chapter 11. So imagine if I, you know, Lionel Hutz forges all these bad checks and then he goes to the next city over and he's like, ah, I'm Miguel Sanchez. And they're like, what about these bad checks? He's like, no, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm Miguel Sanchez. You have to talk to Lionel Hutz about that. We would see right through it. It's total bogus-ness. 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 Oh, God, it drives me crazy. And they'll get away with it because, and here's the thing. Look, they're actually not breaking the law. They just have very devious lawyers and pro I imagine the UAW is so overwhelmed with everything that was going on. Part of why bankruptcy works for companies is because it sends everything into a tailspin. It's a total crisis mode for everybody who needs to get something out of this company. And they can shake off some of their responsibilities when they go through this bankruptcy stuff. And everybody's like, I should say everybody, the few, the three economists I saw mentioning this on Reddit, they all went, you know, well, the judge is right. There's nothing that the UAW can do about it because the contract is what it is. But here's the thing. Look, we we insist that contracts be just um, all the time. We And we certainly should. That should be part of our legal system. It's not, you know, it shouldn't be just what's in, you know, as Elizabeth Warren has said in, in credit card contracts. Uh, it, it, if, if you have a credit card contract that's unjust and somebody signs it without realizing what's going on, there is some culpability on the part of the credit card company to, to adjust the way they do business so that they're not suckering people in, right? So that should happen with this as well, whatever. GOP debunked on food stamps. This is a really interesting piece in uh, Salon.com, and it has to do with how food stamps affect people and how people interact with food stamps. Because we hear a lot of things these days about how, oh, people become dependent on it, and it's a cycle of government dependence, and the government keeps expanding. And first of all, as you probably know, food stamps are like one-tenth of one-hundredth of one percent of the U.S. federal budget. So the fact that people are talking about, we got to cut food stamps is just ludicrous. In fact, anybody talking about anything in terms of cutting the federal government is meaningless in scope unless you're talking about Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, or the Pentagon. 
Now, the first, the, uh, the two of those, Medicare and Social Security, that's care for the elderly, medical care especially, and you can't talk about that because you will get kicked out of office yesterday. Medicaid, people like going after. It's not that big a, a part of the federal budget, but that's insuring medical insurance for the least of us, like the people who are poorest in society. And, how, how, you know, we're not spending very much on that to begin with. We would probably save money on both of those if we had Medicare for all because there's lower overhead, but whatever. And, but the the defense budget, of course you can't talk about that. $700 billion a year to, to go after what? rock-strewn sections of Afghanistan? Yes, we definitely need those laser sights on the orbital launchers or something, I guess, maybe. You can't even start talking about cutting that because it's a boondoggle. Everybody in their district has some military spending and they can say, look, I'm making jobs happen. Anyway, whatever. So the article is about food stamps. Uh, Hillary Hoynes is a University of California at Berkeley economist who wrote a particularly notable paper last year. Instead of increasing dependency, as conservative critics have repeatedly claimed, Hoyan's paper showed that, for women at least, uh, food stamp use during pregnancy and early childhood has exactly the opposite impact of what conservatives allege. It actually increases economic self-sufficiency when children grow up in the next generation. That was just one of two main results reported in Long-Run Impacts of Childhood Access to the Safety Net, which Hoynes co-authored with Diane Whitmore, uh, Schadzenbach, and Douglas Almond. As stated in the paper's abstract, access to food stamps for women leads to, quote, increases in economic self-sufficiency, increases in educational attainment, earnings, and income, and decreases in welfare participation, end quote. Hoynes and her colleagues took advantage of the fact that food stamp programs were established county by county over a period of years, creating a sort of natural experiment beginning half a century in the past. And also going against the notion that you can't do anything about poverty in the U.S. or whatever, uh, how cash handouts are remaking lives in Brazil. And this is from the Globe and Mail. Ten years ago, Brazil set out to do something that few countries have ever overtly attempted, become more equal. The undertaking was unusual, but even more remarkable was the outcome, measurable success. Brazil has in the past decade moved people out of poverty on an unprecedented scale. The standard of living improved so much for 22 million that they are no longer considered poor. Millions more living on the knife edge of starvation in drought-ridden expanses of the interior are still poor, but vastly better off. Between 2003 and 2009, incomes of the poorest Brazilians grew seven times those of rich citizens. And how did Brazil help? It gave its poorest citizens money. It's an idea that was once anathema to development experts and economists, and which is still deeply unpopular in many quarters. Witness the hostility to, quote, welfare moms in the developed world. We were just talking about that. But the effectiveness of giving money to poor people to make them less poor is supported by mounting evidence as a smart way to address poverty. Later in the article, infant mortality has fallen by 40% in 10 years, one of the most dramatic declines ever seen anywhere, and the fall is sharpest in poorest areas. School enrollment sits at nearly 100%, and kids who get the grant now graduate at nearly twice the rate of kids who don't. Research shows that women given the grant have greater decision-making power and more equitable relations with their partners if they have one. Now, so there was some discussion about this on Reddit, and I don't want to discount the perspectives of people on the other side of this discussion. For instance, some people said that it's, again, it's kind of a boondoggle in Brazil, and people just sort of hand out government money, and they're guaranteed being reelected. Now, I would say that, you know, that's a way, if people need the money, like, okay, you know, especially as somebody who makes a decent living, like, I'm happy to pay taxes if I know that those taxes are going to take care of people with real needs. 
So the question about is it sustainable, I think is a secondary question. Uh, now, that is a fair question, and I think that, you know, if we want to look at, again, that data side of the economics, we should look at GNP and growth rates and all the stuff that are considered sort of standard good measures. But the fact that this is helping with uh, infant mortality and people going to school and uplifting the least of us, I think that's a great thing. And I think that it's a it's a cool um, data point to say, look, this country just gave poor people money and it's working. And that's something that we might want to consider at some point. Now, some people are going to say, you know, oh, what about the moral hazard? You know, if you pay people to do nothing, or if you pay people money automatically, then maybe they'll just sit around doing nothing all day. And I, I suppose that's a, a concern, but I think that in general, human beings want to work. You know, that's the whole point of Kurt Vonnegut's first novel, Player Piano, is that we're not happy sitting around doing nothing. And I think work does give our lives meaning, and people want to do meaningful work. And I think that if they don't have to, you know, worry about starving to death uh, or, or living, you know, a totally wretched existence, if they, you know, the, one of the reasons people don't leave their crappy minimum wage jobs in the U.S. is because they're, they're worried about, you know, what life will be like without those horrible, horrible jobs. Whereas if we had some, you know, alternatives, then maybe people wouldn't be so desperate to cling to these minimum wage jobs and the dangerous jobs and the horrible jobs. Uh, and then, you know, people would demand more uh, out of those jobs. So whatever. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that, all that. And I don't want to prattle on forever, but that's why we tune into your podcast. Who's this 90-year-old man listening to my podcast? My name is Jenkins Belevovich. Oh, hello, Jenkins Belevovich. Oh, boy, we're back to this voices thing again, huh? How do you spell Belavovich? B-E-L-A-V-I-O-C-I-C-H. That's not at all how you said it. Whatever. Uh, outsourcing costs twice as much as doing things with government workers. This is an article from Newsweek. What gets lost in the increasingly caustic rhetoric is just how inefficient the U.S. government is when it spends, especially when it is outsourcing tasks to hugely profitable private companies. Fortunately, the budget deal just worked out between the White House and the Capitol Hill will prevent a government shutdown and all of its attendant global financial inconveniences, but it does nothing to curtail wasteful spending on companies that are among the nation's richest and most powerful. From Booz Allen Hamilton, the $6 billion a year management consulting firm, to Boeing, the defense contractor, boasting $82 billion in worldwide sales. In theory, these contractors are supposed to save taxpayer money as efficient, bottom-line-oriented corporate behemoths. In reality, they end up costing twice as much as civil servants, according to research by Professor Paul C. Light of New York University and others has shown. Defense contractors like Boeing and Northrop Grumman cost almost three times as much. What the what? What is up with that? Boo, outsourcing, boo. I'm trying to eat a little snack between songs, and I can't finish. Hang on. Edit. Uh, I should always eat lunch before I do the show. It's crazy. I'm, like, starving now. Anyway, moving on, because you deserve a show. Uh, <laughs> Democracy Now! had a really important piece called The Selling of ADHD, Diagnoses Prescriptions Soar After 20-Year Marketing Campaign. A new report in the New York Times questions whether these staggering figures reflect a medical reality or an over-medicated craze that has earned billions in profits for the pharmaceutical companies involved. Sales for ADHD drugs like Adderall and Concerta 
topped $9 billion in the U.S. last year, a more than 500% jump from a decade before. The radical spike in diagnoses has coincided with a 20-year marketing effort to promote stimulant prescriptions for children struggling in school, as well as for adults seeking to take control of their lives. The marketing effort has relied on studies and testimonials from a select group of doctors who have received massive speaking fees and funding grants from major pharmaceutical companies. Dr. Keith Connors, a leading expert on ADHD, told the New York Times he questions the preponderance of ADHD diagnoses in the U.S., stating, quote, This is a concoction to justify the giving out of medication at unprecedented and unjustifiable levels. Uh, to discuss this issue, we're joined by four guests. Alan Schwartz is with us, award-winning reporter who wrote the New York Times piece, Sunday cover story called The Selling of Attention Deficit Disorder. He has written extensively about ADHD in a series of New York Times articles over the past year. Jameson Monroe is with us, a former teenage Adderall addict who now runs Newport Academy, a treatment center for teens suffering from substance abuse and mental health issues. He's also the executive producer of the recent documentary Behind the Orange Curtain, which looks at the prescription drug epidemic. Dr. Gabor Mate is with us from Vancouver, Canada. He is a physician and best-selling author. Among his books, Scattered, How Attention Deficit Disorder Originates and What You Can Do About It, his most recent book is called The Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And we're joined by John Edwards. His son, Johnny Edwards, committed suicide in 2007, just months after he was prescribed Adderall and antidepressant medications at the Harvard University Health Services Clinic. So the New York Times reporter in this discussion on Democracy Now! says uh, about Johnny Edwards, the nurse practitioner involved in the diagnosis and care said that one of the reasons that she put Johnny on stimulants is because he drank a lot of Red Bull, and that's always a sign that somebody needs more attention help. So... Uh, it's a really interesting discussion. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, you know, it's, there's video, obviously, so um, it's it's really worth watching. And you know, I don't think that this this discussion's trying to anybody in this discussion is trying to make the case. And I, I, you know, I've heard some people say that ADHD doesn't exist, and it's all. I don't think that's true at all. I, I know kids. I've worked with kids who suffer from a very real form of a chemical imbalance or sort of neurological, you know disability or handicap or whatever you want to call it like there's something really going on there beyond just you know distraction from you know tv and internet and whatever but having said that i think that a lot of kids are kind of training themselves to believe that well we just can't pay attention and in fact it's a matter of they won't pay attention they will refuse to put the cell phone away they they refuse and in some ways the technology is doing this to us you know and i've reported on things that have come out where people say that you know, they, they can't do it. They had a, a good thing on to the best of our knowledge recently about kids saying they can't put keep the phone away. So I don't know how we deal with that. I think obviously it's something that parents and families have to take care of because I can't, you know, I can f- make it a big power struggle if I want. But if the kid's going to do two-thirds of the work with the cell phone yelling at them all the time versus kick the kid out of the room and then the kid does none of the work, well, obviously, which one am I going to choose, Right. So, it's, it, but it's a big mess. And, and I think that the fact that there are drug companies making out like bandits because of this is something that should not be overlooked. Now, it doesn't negate the reality of ADHD by any means. And, and you, know, I, you know, I know people who have benefited greatly from these medicines. But that's very different from, and this is the profit motive, right? It, it causes the marketing to go to everybody. Hey, you have this problem. Take this drug. And that's not a way for us to approach anything in life because somebody's trying to make a profit off of us coming to believe that we have a certain syndrome. Moving on to more upbeat news, thousands of black and Latino kids lost their schools in 2013. Uh, This is from MSNBC. 
All across the country, from the old industrial northeast to the west coast, through the Midwest and to major cities in the south, mass school closings, the product of deep budget cuts and flawed policy planning, have forced tens of thousands of children further from home. But not all children. Interviews in major cities and a review of census and other data make clear that the vast majority of those affected are African American and poor. In district after district, officials have argued that closing that schools involved had been underutilized or were underperforming, and that by closing them, students have an opportunity to attend better equipped schools. In Chicago, Mayor Rahm Emanuel said that, quote, consolidating schools is the best way to make sure all of our city's students get the resources they need to succeed in the classroom. But after years of closures and consolidation in districts across the country, Chicago alone has closed 150 schools over the past decade, the burden of these academic experiments is being felt on a single community, black folks. And, um, yeah, that, again, this, this sort of comes back to that notion that um, it doesn't matter where a school is, how big a school is, how many resources that school has, all that matters is that the school is performing well and that the numbers are high. And this is the same thing we see in The Wire, where you do whatever you need to to make the numbers look good, and that's how you get promoted, and that's what people are interested in. So who cares if the numbers aren't, you know, as real as they ought to be? <clears throat> Looking at you, Shanghai. NPR had a really important piece about the online education revolution drifts off course. Maybe technology can't solve all our education problems. Oh, no, I wanted technology to save us. Um, yeah, so this is a really interesting overview of these MOOCs, multi-online academies. I don't know what it stands for. M-O-O-C, online courses, whatever. Uh, it's supposed to be, you know, it sounds great in theory. Like, we're democratizing education. There's an online course. It's directed by people at Harvard, and you can sign up. Anybody in the world, hey, education for everyone. Hey, that sounds awesome. Um, however, as they say, there was an experiment at... I think it was UC San Jose or whatever. By all accounts, the San Jose experiment was a bust. Completion rates and grades were worse than for those who took traditional campus-style classes, and the students who did best were not the underserved students San Jose most wanted to reach. It wasn't really proving to be cheaper either, says Paul Hadrius, the chairman of San Jose State's philosophy department. I guess it was San Jose State. Quote, the people that do well in these kinds of courses are people who are already studious or who are taking courses for their own enrichment after they've graduated, he says. A recent University of Pennsylvania study confirmed a massive problem. MOOCs have painfully few active users. About half who registered for a class ever viewed a lecture and completion rates averaged just 4% across all courses. Sebastian Thrun, and those of you who have played Skyrim know that the Thrun is that uh, dragon shout which causes fire or overwhelming force to knock your opponents back. Fusroda! Fusroda. Why could I not think of it? I should play that something stupid thing. Yeah, here it is. Oh man, I hope there aren't ads. Oh no, there's no ads. And then afterwards, we drop into a quiet little place and have a drink or two. Oh my god, I always love that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Sebastian Thrun. The power of your throne is impressive. Uh, Yuda City, whatever Yuda City is, uh, Yuda City's co-founder and a prime mover in MOOCs recently told Fast Company Magazine, quote, we were on the front pages of newspapers and magazines, and at the same time, I was realizing we don't educate people as others wished or as I wished. We have a lousy product. 
So, the prime mover and mooks talking to Fast Company Magazine, which is like the magazine for like new technology and corporate stuff, small businesses. Uh, anyway, finally in the education file, teaching isn't rocket science. It's harder. So this guy worked for NASA for many years, and now he's a teacher. So he's writing from the, the intersection of those two careers. and uh, That's a very interesting way to look at this. Uh, it's from Slate. When I tell people I worked on the design of a NASA spacecraft, their mouths drop and their eyes pop, and their minds are no doubt filled with images of men in white lab coats running between rocket engines and blackboards filled with equations of untold complexity. Most people will give aerospace engineers tremendous respect without having any idea what they actually do. But no one can fully understand how difficult teaching in America's highest-need communities is until he or she personally experiences it. When I solved engineering problems, I had to use my brain. When I solved teaching problems, I used my entire being, everything I have. Amen, dude. i got to give this guy a name check because he's awesome, and I really like him because um, Ryan Fuller. Thank you, Ryan Fuller, for telling people that teaching is tough. And I'm not going to say it's harder than other professions because, you know, it's harder than being a bookseller because I've worked in bookstores. Let's see. The jobs I've had in my life. I was a resident assistant at New College. Pfft, what is that? I need some more toilet paper. Here you go. You have to move your arm about a foot. Here you go. And then occasionally you clean up a broken bottle or, you know, help somebody who's having a crisis and their girlfriend or whatever. Um, so I did that. I worked at uh, Checkers, the fast food restaurant in Gainesville, Florida. I've worked internet support at tech support companies, an uh, internet service provider. Uh, that was not a difficult job. The, the fast food job sucked. That was a tough job. But it was just a, a body job. There was no mental work involved. And it was exhausting. And people who work fast food, God bless you, because that's hard work, man. People who do any kind of physical labor, I think, for a living, you know, whether it's like moving stuff or, you know, fixing cars and stuff. I, I have a lot of respect for that because I could never do it, right? But um, anyway, whatever. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate this dude saying that teaching is tough because it is, you damn skippy. All right, let's go to the killer robots file. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Duke University has this really interesting piece about public domain day. Uh, on the first day of each year, Public Domain Day celebrates the moment when copyrights expire. The films, photos, books, and symphonies whose copyright term has finished become, to quote Justice Louis Brandeis, free as the air to common use, end quote. The end of copyright term on these works means that they enter the public domain, completing the copyright bargain. Copyright gives creators, authors, musicians, filmmakers, photographers, exclusive rights over their works for a limited time. This encourages creators to create and publishers to distribute. That's a very good thing. But when the copyright ends, the work enters the public domain to join the plays of Shakespeare, the music of Mozart, the books of Dickens, the material of our collective culture. That's a good thing, too. It's the second part of the copyright bargain. The limited period of exclusive rights ends, and the work enters the realm of free culture. Prices fall. New editions come out. Songs can be sung. I'm not going to play new edition. Mr. Telephone Man, there's something wrong with my line. All 
Oh, new addition. What a classic group of people that was. It was Bobby Brown and Belle Biv DeVoe. Oh, so slick. Anyway, uh, new edition, right. What, what were they saying? Oh, yeah. So new editions come out. Songs can be sung, symphonies performed, movies displayed. Even better, people can legally build on what came before. What is entering the public domain in the United States? Nothing. Once again, we will have nothing to celebrate this January 1st. Not a single published work is entering the public domain this year or next year. In fact, in the United States, no publication will enter the public domain until 2019. Even more shockingly, the Supreme Court ruled in 2012 that Congress can take back works from the public domain. Could Shakespeare, Plato, or Mozart be pulled back into copyright? The Supreme Court gave no reason to think that they could not be. And wherever in the world you live, you will likely have to wait a very long time for anything to reach the public domain. When the first copyright law was written in the United States, copyright lasted 14 years, renewable for another 14 years if the author wished. Jefferson or Madison could look at the books written by their contemporaries and confidently expect them to be in the public domain within a decade or two. Now, in the United States, as in most of the world, copyright lasts for the author's lifetime plus another 70 years, and we've changed the law so that every creative work is automatically copyrighted even if the author does nothing. What do these laws mean to you? As you can read in our analysis here, and they've got a link, they impose great and in many cases entirely unnecessary costs on creativity, on libraries and archives, on education, and on scholars. More broadly, they impose costs on our entire collective culture. We have little reason to celebrate on Public Domain Day because our public domain has been shrinking, not growing. Awesome. Thank you, Duke University. I love that. And I'd be happy. Look, I, I can't give my book away, man. I mean, I'm happy to get money for it, but mostly I want people to read it. And if if putting it in the public domain, I mean, I'm not putting it in the public domain now, but 14 years is a long time to gain royalties from a thing. And, and it's, you know, even if you were to double it, that's fine. 30 years is a long time for something to be, you know, copyrighted. And think about it. Movies from 30 years ago, wouldn't it be awesome if they were in the public domain? You could do whatever you wanted with them. Oh, that's the way it should be, man. They've made a lot of profits off those movies in those 30 years. Ah. 70 injured in carnivorous fish attack in Argentina. Uh, this is the most bizarre story I've heard lately. Uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, an attack by a school of carnivorous fish has injured 70 people bathing in an Argentine river, including seven children who lost parts of their fingers or toes. Oh, that's messed up. Director of Lifeguards Federico Cornier said Thursday that thousands of bathers were cooling off from 100-degree temperatures in the Parana River. The Parana River, that's really what it's called. Uh, in Rosario on Wednesday, when bathers suddenly began complaining of bite marks on their hands and feet, he blamed the attack on palometas, a type of piranha, big, voracious, and with sharp teeth that can really bite. So watch out, Argentina people, because there's uh, carnivorous fish in the water. So I wrote a piece a while ago when I was doing this magazine called Down. It was like a journal. I might do it again some more. It's kind of fun. I like writing about different things in different contexts, but whatever. Anyway, uh, it's called Living a Hip-Hop Life. And I'm going to read a part of it because it really summarizes a lot of what I think about how hip-hop applies to my life. 
1981 interview, poet Maya Angelou described the intersection of poetry and existence. Quote, leading a poetic life, she said, means being existential to the extent that any human can be responsible. By this, I mean immediate, to take responsibility for each moment. To accept no man-made or human-made barriers between human beings is poetic. To absolutely refuse to accept barriers because of histories, tragedies, or assaults, because of differences in languages or customs, age or race, end quote. In a similar vein, Princeton philosophy professor Cornell West describes himself as, quote, a blues man in the life of the mind, a jazz man in the world of ideas, end quote. And lately I've been confronting these notions as I try to figure out how they come together in the central metaphor of my own existence. What does it mean to live a hip-hop life? Obviously, there are deep parallels to Angelou's analysis since hip-hop is poetry. An MC must be immediate and existential. A hip-hop DJ must take responsibility for each moment or else the beat falls apart. Hip-hop at its best has always been about destroying artificial barriers of race, history, and language. But there's more. Hip-hop is about collage and reappropriation. Hip-hop is about devotion to reality and rejection of artificiality, but not theater. Hip-hop is about knowledge of self and contextualization of identity. Hip-hop is about the breakbeat and linguistic improvisation. Hip-hop is, as most Def says, about the people. Hip-hop is about freedom of speech and resistance to illegitimate authority with recognition of the concurrent responsibility. So let's take these one at a time. But before I do, I want to point out that this is only one aspect of my life, and teaching, writing, video games... Um, Zen Buddhism and political activism are also very important parts of my life. And in fact, I'm right now working on a book that tries to sort of lay out a, a meta-textual vision of all of those things in the same way that this tries to sort of explain how hip-hop is part of my life. Uh, so keep that in mind and watch for my next book coming soon, someday, 10 years from now. I bayonet cassettes and chop beats with... Before the MC, there was there was the DJ. Cool Herc spins at New York City block parties, juicing the speakers from electro patches in the streetlights. Grand Wizard Theodore accidentally runs the turntable belt back and forth so he can hear his mom in the next room. The DJ grabs the sample, rewinds, and loops it. EPMD sits at the computer, slicing data chunks out of Steve Miller and cooling the gang, and then mixes it all together. Living a hip-hop life means I take from my environment what is needed in making of it something more. I know my environment, and I am aware of the world around me. I am immediate, but I do not close my eyes to the importance of history. I combine and juxtapose. Some say sampling in hip-hop demonstrates lack of creativity, or at least lack of skill with instruments. But there can be artistry in sampling, as in other methods of sound manipulation. Vanilla Ice was rightly lambasted for his blatant, uncreative borrowing of the Queen Bowie track under pressure. Thus, we see that a skillful use of samples must be innovative, or innovative. If done correctly, uh, sampling is the most sincere form of imitation. Are your tales of reality worth their sonic-laced discussions? No maxim is more central to hip-hop, especially in the second decade of the new millennium, than keep it real, without ignoring the directive power of music to continue cycles of negativity and positivity. Hip-hop is grounded in a desire to reflect the artist's world with the same veracity as Balzac and Dickens. Flash and the Five delivered the message, and Run DMC said simply, it's like that. Chuck and Flav took it to a new level with I, while Cube gave an ironic twist on the standard school essay, My Summer Vacation, a methodical mimetic metronome. Living a hip-hop life means that I stay grounded in the truth. I do not run from my reality, and I use theater as a way to reflect larger truths that cannot sustain straight narrative. I am honest about who I am and where I come from. I do not pretend, defraud, front, or perpetrate. If what I am is not enough, I do not fake it. I become something greater. 
Alas, the videos and online personas have deluded so many fans into thinking that the front is the truth. Half-naked ladies, foaming champagne bottles, and rainstorms of money cover up economic realities in the ghetto that haven't changed since Reagan first took office. Many young people think it's just about the clothes and the guns and the cars. But of course, as M1 put it, is it the bandana, the hat, the loafs of the gat? I tell you off the bat, hell no, it ain't none of that. It ain't the smell of the chronic, the broken ebonics. They be the main ones popping that stuff, but they don't want it. I might as well tell you who I am. Zadie Smith once described the best rappers as, quote, having the world inside their mouths, end quote. But before we can speak the world, we must speak ourselves. Search and Pete Nice never pretended not to be white, unlike some candy name MCs I could mention. When Run DMC shouted, proud to be black, it brought back the James Brown spirit, and we all said it loud. Kid Frost, Be Real, and Angie Martinez bring the Latin flavor. Crush and Honda do the same for Japan. We represent where we're from because that matters. Living a hip-hop life means I am eager to learn the history of my people, whoever my people may be. I am conscious of how others see me and how I see myself. I listen to Donna Haraway describe situated knowledges, and I restrain myself from pretending to know things I do not. I draw from my experience. I am not limited by it. I seek constantly to expand it. The hip-hop self is neither static nor simplistic. No artist remains the same, and those who do not know themselves are quickly reminded of this fact. Temet Noske, as the oracle told Neo, Naturally, ego and confidence are locked in a moral struggle. We must be patient as we wait for others to mature or finish bragging about themselves, because as Lifesavers said, that kid was our past and that friend could be our future. Return of the Boom Bap the break, and specifically the boom bap, brings life to hip-hop. Skilled MCs don't need the 4-4 all the time, but most of us wouldn't recognize rap music without it. JMJ and the RZA swirl these bars together in a stereophonic alchemy, providing a steady foundation for the words up above, which must show architectural integrity of imaginative multi-definition and transcendent purpose. Living a hip-hop life means I am comfortable with both bass and treble. I am not afraid of the space between the boom and the bap, the deep drum and the harsh snare. My head nods almost autonomously when the beat starts up, even if I have no idea where or from whom it's coming. A beat is a beat is a beat, and the musical rest is compliment. I embrace words to lather the beat, aware of tools like onomatopoeia, metonymy, and metaphor. My words have meaning. Our current freestyling fetish risks a denigration of thoughtful written lyrics. Obviously, off-the-top versatility is impressive, especially if it produces something worthwhile. I personally doubt any freestyle will ever surpass Rakim's lyrics of fury. But linguistic improvisation takes many forms. I worry about the evaporation of written words in this age of disposable status updates, vulgar battle lyrics, and silly just-for-the-heck-of-it party rhymes. Funk is our neighbor, so we paid her a visit. There is no hip-hop without community. Bombada called together the Zulu Nation to provide a breathing alternative to gang death. The block party is the stable manger where the Messiah children of the music were born. Graph tags across the walls, inside and out. As violent and chaotic as Do the Right Thing is, we see a vibrant community trying to cope with its own tensions, and P.E. is more than fitting as the ubiquitous soundtrack. Living a hip-hop life means I am not isolated. I do not sacrifice my individual identity, but neither am I removed from the nurturing soil of community, nor do I hesitate to provide soil for others. 
I respect my neighbors and do for others as I would want them to do for me. I use the power of the music to transcend artificial boundaries between human beings. Paradoxically, or perhaps with intentional irony, Public Enemy's track I is more about the dissolution of community and absurd community contradictions than it is a meditation of individual identity. With the megastardom of a lucky select few, it's easy to think that hip-hop is only about me, not us. But as with jazz, individual limelight must forever be balanced with the dynamic of the group. There is no method man without the rest of the Wu-Tang. Let's get free. Fight the power. Bob Moses and the Cross Bronx Expressway are central to understanding the birth of hip-hop. Like Arthur Dent, hip-hoppers lay down in front of the bulldozers on cardboard and begin to break. It is a resistance music, what Thoreau called a counter-friction to stop the machine. Hip-hop is not okay with things the way they are. Hip-hop stands up to police brutality, with vulgar lyrics from NWA and more comprehensive analysis from BDP. Hip-hop resists illegitimate economic structures. Paris and the coup blaze the trail here. The best traditions of hip-hop even challenge sexism and homophobia. Conscious daughters and disposable heroes come to mind. Living a hip-hop life means developing my political consciousness. I take the red pill. I do not hide from the real world, and I do not shy away from uncomfortable complexities. I am writing to explore things that are confusing, and I try to understand the world around me. I take a stand for what is important, and I understand myself as part of a tradition of struggle greater than myself. This, perhaps, is the more important aspect of it all. It's bigger than hip-hop, as Dead Prez said. And just as I didn't go into teaching for the sake of summers off or fat paychecks, I don't drink from the waters of hip-hop for just funky beats or clever wordplay. In all of these elements, all of these situations, they are a nice fringe benefits rather than the essential core elements. Hip-hop is about transformation and, defined broadly, revolution. Thus, when it's all said and done, I hope people will say that my life has been transformative and revolutionary. Let's do a quote of the week, shall we? Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. James Baldwin, born in 1924, died in 1987, was an African-American writer, poet, and essayist. In a 1963 piece called A Talk to Teachers, he wrote, quote, The purpose of education, finally, is to create in a person the ability to look at the world for himself, to make his own decisions, to say to himself, this is black or this is white, to decide for himself whether there is a God in heaven or not, to ask questions of the universe, and then learn to live with those questions is the way he achieves his own identity. But no society is really anxious to have that kind of person around. What societies really, ideally want is a citizenry which will simply obey the rules of society. If a society succeeds in this, that society is about to perish. The obligation of anyone who thinks of himself as responsible is to examine society and try to change it and to fight it, no matter what the risk. This is the only hope society has. This is the only way societies change. All right, people, that's it. We made it under an hour. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is at fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. Shout-outs this week to you. Yes, you, whoever's listening to this. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Get in touch, please. Um, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to say. I'm a very busy man. Listen, Deal with it. I don't it. have time to play. 
play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. I would still love to get some questions from people. What do you think about this, or what's your take on that? Uh, ESP at FBESP.org. You can tweet me at Duke Scath. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. And now I can eat this orange I've been putting off.